Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Paul Bogard, author of the new book, The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light, spent his childhood summers in a cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota where shooting stars cut across swaths of countless stars, and uh, the Milky Way reflected off the lake, and the woods were so dark he couldn't see his hands in front of his face. In our modern world of nights as bright as day, most of us no longer experience true darkness. Eight out of ten Americans born today won't ever live where they can see the Milky Way. Bogart believes that a starry night is one of nature's most magical wonders, and in The End of Night, he seeks to restore our awareness of the spectacularly primal, wildly dark night sky and how it's influenced the human experience across everything from science to art. He blends personal narrative, natural history, science, and history to shed a light on the importance of darkness, what we've lost, what we still have, and what we might regain in the simple ways we can reduce the brightness of our nights tonight. Paul Bogard teaches creative nonfiction at James Madison University. He's the ether, uh, editor of a previous anthology, Let There Be Night, Testimony on Behalf of the Dark. Paul Bogard uh, joins us. Uh, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could begin by having you describe th- th- your, your childhood summers, that cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota. Just that brief description had me going there. Um, and, and what got you so fascinated by by nighttime dark well it was a wonderful uh lucky experience to grow up actually grew up in minneapolis and our family has a cabin we still have a cabin up there and and so every summer and uh many of the winters i was up there and in the summer we 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 just used to go out and stand on the end of the dock and watch uh, the sky and i just vividly remember the slow, straight lines of satellites moving across these sugary spreads of stars, just so many stars you just couldn't imagine. Uh, and it's still pretty dark up there, um, but it's definitely starting to show the effects of light pollution. One of the uh, facts in the book, and I don't know if I've ever experienced this, but a truly dark night, you say that uh, you look up at the Milky Way, look up at the sky, and it should have dimension and even color. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's, uh, you know, most of us have never experienced that, and I've only had that experience a couple times. But, yeah, when you get the real dark nights and a real clear sky, you start to see uh, the depth of of space. It, it, It seems like, of course, some stars are closer to us and some stars further away, but we usually don't see that. It looks like we're just kind of looking at a flat uh, lid on the, uh, on the sky. And um, in those lucky moments, you really begin to have the sense of sort of the three-dimensionality of the sky, and you're able to start um, picking out different colors in the sky. It's really a different experience and one that, you know, if, if, if you've grown up in, in a city or a suburb in the States, uh, you've probably not had that experience. So I've seen pictures of this, and we probably all have, but uh, probably very few of us have actually experienced that looking with our naked eye up at the sky. Yeah, and I think that's an important um, point to make. I I talk about um, visiting an astronomer in upstate New York who uh, took me out to look at the moon and and Saturn, and he said that he's shown Saturn to well over a thousand people at this observatory he built, and he said he always gets one of two reactions, which is either, oh my gosh, or that's not real. You know, people just don't believe that they're seeing with their own eyes um, this uh, beautiful planet that they've seen pictures of, but seeing a picture is not the same as seeing it with your naked eye. I wonder if you have your book with you. I do. I wonder if I could have you read just a a couple paragraphs. This is on page uh, 265. It's near the end of the book. And you, you get talking about some of the darkest places, and we'll, we'll talk about that. You have some good examples and bad examples. By the way, one of the bad examples is Las Vegas, so a lot of us here in Utah have experienced that. Um, but just uh, at, at the break there, at the bottom of page 265, and then continuing over the first paragraph in 266. Sure, absolutely. So I'm talking about these very dark places that I've experienced. And um, just before this, actually, I've been talking about natural bridges, which a lot of people um, in Utah will know about. But here I move on to a couple other things. Here are two more, both personal, places I hope we all share. 
The first is memory. Mine of the night in Morocco when I thought I'd stepped into a snowstorm. I thought when I began this book of trying to go back, of trying to find that location and maybe even that sky. But instead, I decided to protect that memory and to look for similar nights elsewhere. This is the place of our first-hand experience with nights, beautiful, inspiring night that I've heard about again and again from those I've met, and that forms the basis for any future concern about darkness. The opportunity to experience a real dark night, especially when we're young, imprints on our minds a vision we never lose, one we might be inspired to regain. The second is a night called home, for me a lake in northern Minnesota. These days I'm only there during summers and sometimes at New Year's, but this is the night that means the most to me, the one that moves me to act. If we're going to protect darkness, we almost certainly will do so because of the darkness we cherish or wish to see again in the place we call home. Just as Edward Abbey wrote, this is the most beautiful place on earth, there are many such places. So I see the night at the lake. Even if it's no longer pristine, it's the most beautiful night I know, the night I want to protect most. So that had a real effect on you. It really did. and. One of the things that I talk about throughout the book is this first-hand experience, especially when you're a child or a young person, uh, because I think that it, uh, it imprints on you this memory that never leaves, and it affects you the rest of your life. And if you never have that experience of a, of a real dark night, a real dark sky, you're probably not going to be that concerned that we're losing that experience uh, all over the world. And it's, it's fading away, isn't it? There, there's some spectacular, at least the sequence you have in your book. Uh, the, the world, what, 1930, and then sequentially, and then you have a projection for 2025. Yeah, this is a, a really heartbreaking image, but I want to I say also uh, impressive image that was compiled by a couple um, astronomers about 12 years ago who really wanted to show the true extent of light pollution, because I think it's, it's tempting for us to think that, well, you know, our cities and our towns are brightly lit, but once you get out into the country, you know, it's, it's pretty dark. But their point was that it may be pretty dark, but it's not naturally dark, and it's not as dark as it was. So they used um, data from 1996, actually, that they'd gotten from NASA to create uh, colorful maps that show the true extent of light pollution at that point. And what's really compelling is that they then estimated backward to the 1950s and the 1970s. And you, you see before you uh, this image of how dark the, the U.S. was in the 50s and the 70s. It's really remarkable. And many of us can remember back, uh, we're growing up during that time, and then they estimated forward to the year 2025 and showed if we continue to grow, if light, continue, light pollution continues to grow at the rate it is, which is an average of about 6% every year, uh, they showed a map of the U.S. where, as I describe it, everywhere east of the Mississippi is completely covered with light pollution. And even in the west, there are just scraps of black remaining. Yeah, 2025, it seems like in the west, we'd, if projections hold, we'd, you know, lose that uh, that darkness uh, and i know some people will be wondering uh why does this even matter except you know to people like you are fascinated by uh, nighttime darkness the, the way it used to be why, why does it matter it matters for a lot of reasons and i think that uh, as much as i love talking about the experience of a amazing night sky that's just one aspect of of why darkness is important uh i remember talking with an astronomer in flagstaff who said he was you know, really proud of the fact that Flagstaff has uh, a really effective lighting ordinance that keeps the level of light down in the city. And he was um, proud of the fact that most folks who live in Flagstaff um, accept that, and they even like that. But he was disappointed in the fact that when you ask people there why they have the, the lower lights, uh, they say, well, it's because of the observatory, the low of the observatory there. And he said, you know, the night, the darkness is for all of us. And he said, it's like 
thinking that we protect the Grand Canyon for geologists so that they can study the rock, right? We protect it for, for all of us. And the reason, though, beyond uh, having the experience of a night sky, a couple important reasons. One is um, uh, ecologically, darkness is vitally important. Uh, all life on Earth evolved with bright days and dark nights and, and needs this darkness. There are so many nocturnal and crepuscular creatures that depend on darkness and for whom our artificial light at night is like a, uh, is destructive, as destructive as a bulldozer in the daytime. And these are many species that we depend on, that we benefit from, like moths that are pollinating or bats that are pollinating. Um, and then there are the human effects, uh, the human health effects as well. And what researchers are increasingly discovering is that bright light at night is disrupting our sleep it's confusing our circadian rhythms that our body depends on, and it's impeding the production of the hormone melatonin in our bodies, which is only produced at night. And this um, disruption of this production of the hormone has been linked to cancer now, especially breast cancer and prostate cancer, so much so that the World Health Organization now lists working the night shift as a probable carcinogen. So this research is in the early stages. We've you know, all this bright light that we have is relatively recent, but it's really compelling, and, and it's, uh, there are some really important reasons for us to be thinking about this issue now, uh, because we can do something about this. This is not an intractable problem. We're talking with uh, Paul Bogart. He teaches creative nonfiction at James Madison University. His new book is The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. And uh, he cites uh, several national parks in Utah as very good examples where you can still uh, get a great experience of nighttime darkness. We have a Facebook uh, comment we'll uh, get to following the break uh, with a uh, uh, discouraging news from Canyonlands National Park. And we'll talk about why uh, Farland Fish uh, sees less of the uh, night darkness in Canyonlands nowadays. Uh, and we'll get to be talking about uh, some good examples and bad examples. Uh, those would include Las Vegas and Paris. Paul Bogart says that uh, we can make some choices where, uh, for example, the City of Lights does it in the right way. And we'll uh, talk a little bit more about some of the uh, darkest places and uh, what the experience is there. That includes some places in Utah following the break. Waste not. Never water in the hottest part of the day. Only water between 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. to prevent evaporation. And when the kids want to cool off, use a sprinkler in an area where your lawn needs it the most. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Krebs Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Support also comes from the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's The Tempest with seven other productions June through October 2013 in Cedar City. Information at www.bard.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest today is Paul Bogart, author of the new book, The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Eight out of ten Americans born today won't ever live where they can see the Milky Way. Bogart believes that a starry night is one of nature's most magical wonders. And so in his book, he talks about the importance of darkness, what we've lost, what we still have, what we might regain, and the simple ways we can reduce the brightness of our nights tonight. Paul Bogard teaches creative nonfiction at James Madison University. He's the editor previously of an anthology, Let There Be Night, Testimony on Behalf of Dark. You're welcome to join the conversation here. We'd love to hear your experience. Of, uh, have you had uh, some magical experiences in especially dark places? Um, or perhaps you want to tell us about uh, how you're losing uh, that nighttime darkness, as uh, many of us are. Uh, we're encouraging you to post pictures as well on our Facebook page, but you can comment on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio, 
you can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Paul Bogard, I notice that you count down your chapters. There are nine chapters. You start with chapter nine all the way down to number one. Why'd you do that? Well, I borrowed this idea from what's called the Bortle Scale of Darkness, which is a scale uh, designed by an amateur astronomer in upstate New York who got tired of having mostly younger uh, amateur astronomers tell him to come out to a certain place because it was so dark. And when he would arrive at that place, he realized it really wasn't so dark and that these younger astronomers had never really experienced what real darkness is. So he designed this nine-point scale, um, starting with nine, going down to one, nine being our brightest places, so places like Las Vegas, Times Square, or really, in many cases, any major city in the world uh, at this point, and working uh, his way down to one, this primordial darkness where there's no evidence of artificial light. And one of the things that stands out to me about this scale is that most Americans, and folks in Utah are, are maybe a little bit luckier than, than most Americans, but most Americans live most of our lives in the levels five and above. We never really experience or very seldomly experience darkness um, any lower than a five, which is a kind of a suburban, suburban light. So I borrowed this, uh, this idea, and I start in bright places and work my way down to the darkest places looking for some of those really wonderful experiences of darkness. So if most of us live our lives in five and above, uh, perhaps like those those young astronomers that, uh, that Mr. Bordy took took out, a lot of us perhaps have sort of a, an adjusted scale. We think we're in dark places, but we're, we're really not. That's a great point. And I think that, um, you know, this is happening to us with so many issues related to the environment where we think what we have is reality. It's this idea of the diminishing baseline that, you know, we look out and we think, oh, it's really dark, Um, but it's actually not really dark anymore. It used to be much darker. Or we look out and we think, oh, there's so much wildlife, and it's actually much diminished from what it used to be. And the danger of that is that we continue to think, well, you know, a little bit more light won't really matter um, because it's still really dark. But compared to what it was, and I would say in an optimistic tone, compared to what it could be, it really isn't that dark. There's a passage in the book. I wonder if we'd have you read that. Page 27. You you have a wonderful quote there from Henry Thoreau, which which goes to what you were just saying, that, uh, you know, whether we realize it or not, that the, we have erosion here of, of what used to be, including... Uh, the the darkness. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite passages from Thoreau, and I think it speaks to um, not only darkness, but to so many issues. When I think of how light pollution keeps us from knowing real darkness, real nights, I think of Henry David Thoreau wondering in 1856, is it not a maimed and imperfect nature that I'm conversant with? He was writing about the woods around Walden Pond and how the nobler animals, such as wolf and moose, had been killed or scared away. I hear that it is but an imperfect copy that I possess, he explained, that my ancestors have torn out many of the first leaves and grandest passages and mutilated it in many places. I should not like to think that some demigod had come before me and picked out some of the best of the stars. Some 150 years later, this is exactly what we've allowed our lights to do. I wish to know an entire heaven and an entire earth, Thoreau concluded. Every time I read this, I think, me too. Mm-hmm. And you, you write that in the United States, most of us will never experience a, a number one on the, on the Borty scale. Which yeah. Which is the, mo- the uh, darkest. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, some people would, would argue that there really are no um, level one darkness uh, places left in the States, and that's because um, it's really hard to get away from a, 
get to a spot where you, in any direction you can't see some evidence of artificial light. And then uh, even there's so much light um, that we're pumping into the sky or at different angles into the sky that to get to somewhere where there's not at least some light up in the atmosphere above you, um, it, it's really tough to get to that those level one places anymore. And I guess an example of, we don't think about this, but light does definitely travel. And you're saying the book, this 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 true, uh, lights of Las Vegas, light from Las Vegas, can be seen in eight national parks. I assume that includes, I don't know, Zion or, you know, some parks in Utah. It sure does. And I, I think that's, you know, you're talking about light traveling. That's something that we we don't think about that much. We think, you know, if we're in a city, well, it's really bright here, but once you get out into the country, you know, it's going to be dark. But in fact, that that light from the city or from those towns is traveling long distances out into the country. This is especially true if we're using lights that are unshielded. So those lights that we're just allowing to shoot light in all directions, whether straight up into the sky or at horizontal angles, um, that light is traveling a long way away from its source, far past the the property or the street that it was meant to illuminate. Um, I want to get into some of the reasons for light pollution. I'll have you define light pollution, but I want to get this in from Farland Fish. He uh, comments on our Facebook page. You can as well, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, he says, My dark night sky looking out over the wilderness of Canyonlands National Park has been lost. Now I see the, br- the bright lights of multiple gas drilling operations. So there's one reason why we're losing at night. Yeah, and it's and it's remarkable. You can actually see um, those lights from space now. So photographs from space. I remember uh, I just recently saw an image of North Dakota where there's so much of this uh, drilling going on. You can see the flares from the rigs from space. It's that that bright now. So how how do you define uh, light pollution? Well, light pollution is uh, artificial lighting that is overused or misused. And so the the point that I make um, early and often is that uh, artificial light uh, is wonderful. It's it's uh, a miracle. It allows brings so much benefit to us. It's allowed us to to do so many things. It's just that we're using way more of it than we need. And we're using it in not very intelligent ways. Um, we, we waste uh, enormous amounts of light simply by letting it shine into the sky or in all directions. Um, and so light pollution is a, a term we use, a, an attempt to get people to become aware that um, light isn't bad in and of itself, but we can use too much of it and we can use it in ways that's harmful to uh, the world we live in. And uh, one of these other facts is just amazing to think about. Uh, most of us in our modern world, our, our eyes will never switch to night vision, true night vision. Why don't you talk about that? Sure. The, the number that I heard was uh, some 40% of, of Americans and Europeans, our eyes will never switch to, to night vision um, because there's, we live in so much light. You know, we... We work inside, many of us, uh, amongst the lights, um, and then we get in our cars and drive home surrounded by lights, and we go into our house at night and we're surrounded by lights, and we read from our iPads or our computers or we watch TV up to the moment that we turn out the light and try to go to sleep. And many of us don't even turn out the light when we try to go to sleep, so we're actually sleeping in lights. And our eyes, which the human eye is a really remarkable uh, organ that is uh, sensitive to um, a, a wide range of, of light and dark situations. We never allow our, li- our eyes to, or we ne- our eyes never have the chance to adjust to darkness in ways that would really unlock the wonders of a night sky. I wonder if I could have you read uh, back on page uh, 265. And this time, the, the top of the page. Uh, th- this is your experience at Natural Bridges uh, National Monument. Uh, by the way, I, I, don't know, I keep going back to Chapter 9 because it's, this is where you experience the darkest places. Um, and so you're out in Natural Bridges National Monument. You make the uh, point earlier, the, the previous page, that you, you don't have to hike a long way to, to experience some of these. You can, some of these places, you can drive right up to a parking lot and, 
and experience some <clears throat> some wonderful darkness. I assume maybe number two on the on the scale. That's right, and Natural Bridges is a wonderful place um, and an accessible place. That's a that's a point that I make that in the book is that I wanted to go to places, uh, seek out darkness in places that are accessible to us. You know, it, I I could have you know tried to sail out into the middle of the ocean or as uh, as one person says to me at the beginning of the book, you know, you'd probably have better luck if you flew to Australia and drove out to the middle of the outback, but. That wasn't my point. My point was to think about lighting and darkness in the places where most of us live and to go seek out darkness, dark places, and in places that we can still get to. And so Utah is has a wonderful opportunity because uh, it's home to many of these accessible places, uh, Natural Bridges being one of them. Um, and so I can, I can read there. Um, a few nights later, I find myself sitting alone on a pile of massive rocks, waiting to meet the darkness of Natural Bridges National Monument. In 2006, the International Dark Sky Association named Natural Bridges its first International Dark Sky Park. The NPS Night Sky team had ranked the level of darkness as two on the Bortle scale. And as Chris Luganbuehl explained, basically that means it's the darkest or starriest sky they've seen while doing these reviews. Kevin Poe, a ranger at Bryce Canyon, is right. You can drive to the darkest or starriest sky they've seen. You can park in paved parking, use the clean basic outhouse, walk the paved path to the overlook. I'm not saying you have to. There are backcountry options as well. But don't think just because many consider this the darkest place in the national park system that you can't get here easily. True, the drive takes a while, and if you come the way I did, you climb the side of a canyon that'll have you wondering about the, a letter to the maker of your rental asking if their new cars ever stall and start, start to slide backward. But when you get here, you may find it almost deserted if it's a weekday early in the season. With hardly anyone in the campground and no cars on the loop road, you can park and walk out to this pile of rocks, climb up easily, and wait for night. Three large natural stone bridges cross over a curving canyon full of dark pinyon green, red rock cliffs for a backdrop. To be where anyone else could be and yet find yourself alone feels like discovering a secret. So you're out here on this big rock, waiting for darkness to rise around you, shoes off, your feet bare to the breeze, and here's what happens. The longer you stay, the darker it gets, and the darker it gets, the more sounds arise, crows and frogs in the canyon, crickets all around, and sounds that make you think of lions. Despite Kevin Poe's having said that you're more likely to be killed by a vending machine than a mountain lion, you can't help but feel that tingle of fear, that fear of the unknown, that mystery. You like the, feel, you like the feel of bare feet on warm desert rocks, the unexpected scent of night-blooming rose, you lie on your back with your hands across your eyes like blinders, making the world that much darker than open them to reveal the sky. You do this again and again, and each time the sky is a little brighter, each time more peppered with stars. You stand and open your arms, savoring this window of darkness between the end of twilight and the waning moon's rise. You feel the breeze on your skin and in your hair, hear the sounds from the canyon of crickets and crows and the steady throb of some creature unknown. You feel utterly surrounded by natural light, by fellow creatures for whom this is home, none of whom care if you're here as long as you don't bother them, all of whom lend their voice to the song this night sings, saying, welcome, 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 belong. That's Paul Bogard reading a passage from his book, The End of Night. He's out in uh, Natural Bridges National Monument in Utah. Uh, you talk there about you're experiencing the darkness, you're looking up. It's a visual feast, I imagine, seeing the Milky Way, etc. But there are also sounds. This also connects you to maybe a different sense of time. There, there, there are a lot of experiences that are enhanced by nighttime darkness. There really are. It's, it's a real sensory experience. I... I hesitate sometimes to talk about looking at the night sky because our sense of vision is only one part of that experience. Uh, sounds are so evocative at night, whether it's crickets 
or in northern Minnesota, for example, the sound of a loon calling or a wolf howling uh, in the night is is breathtaking. Um, and for me, though, the the sense of smell at night is just so wonderful. It it just has always uh, taken me back to places I've been or that I that I'd like to be. It it's amazing how um, you can be out at night and and uh, smell something and just immediately be transported back to your childhood or across the ocean to some place that you once traveled. And I just love that. It's kind of a magic uh, experience. I want to talk next about <clears throat> safety and fear. And you treat this, of course, in the, in the book. You talk in that passage uh, about uh, maybe the, the sense of fear is, is a little bit enhanced. But I imagine the impulse, once we got the incandescent bulb, one of the impulses... Uh, was, in fact, you talk about banishing darkness from night. One of those is safety, banishing fear. Absolutely. It's a huge issue. And I, as I say, um, is the third chapter of my book is about safety and security because it doesn't take very long if I'm talking or if anyone's talking about losing the night sky or losing the experience of real darkness for somebody to raise the objection that, well, we need all these lights for safety and security. And so I wanted to address that head-on. Um, I also admit that uh, I'm, I still have a fear of the dark in, in some respects. I'm, I, it's kind of ironic, I think, you know, the guy who wrote the book on the value of darkness admitting to uh, still having a fear of the dark, but I think that's a natural part of being human, um, to have some fear of the dark. What I think is unnatural um, and certainly unfortunate is the way that we use our our fear of the dark, our natural fear of the dark, as an excuse or a justification for overlighting uh, our our lives at night. Um, I make the point that you know, if some light can help us be safer or more secure at night, um, that doesn't automatically mean that more light makes us more safe or more secure. And in fact, when you talk to uh, lighting designers, lighting experts, police, um, dark sky advocates, astronomers, you hear again and again how bright lights, really bright lights, actually can work against our, our, our true safety at night because they cast glare, they blind us, they make it harder for us to see, they create shadows where the bad guy can hide. And so... When I give talks, I often show back-to-back -back slides that really demonstrate this in a powerful way. The first slide is a picture of a, it's a, a yard in somebody's house, and they have a what we call a security light uh, blaring away, lighting up the whole yard. Um, and we think, whoa, that, you know, that's for safety. But the next slide is of the photographer holding his hand up to block that light. And then revealed in the background is the bad guy, which is just the, the photographer's friend, standing in the fence with his hands in his pocket. But the, it never fails to elicit a gasp from people when I show these back-to-back -back slides, the point being that in the first slide, you see the really bright lights. You don't see the bad guy standing in the shadows there. But when you hold up your hand to shield that light, you do see the bright, you, you do see the bad guy there. So, again, the point is not no light, but the point is using light intelligently and effectively, and especially that means shielding our lights so the light isn't blasting in all directions. And you have those two pictures in the book. Yeah, I had the same response. I, Whoa, there's a guy there, you know, exactly, <laughs> when, you, yeah. when, you, when you shield yourself from the glare. So solutions, you're, you're not talking about eliminating artificial light, you're talking about shielding? Is that the, the main thing you'd like to see happen? That is the main thing. I, you know, I, I guess I would, the, the half stuff before shielding is just to become aware of all the light that's surrounding us. I think um, once we become aware that there is so much light, and one of the things I sometimes tell people when I'm giving talks is I, I kind of apologize because I say, you know, once you start seeing light pollution, you're going to start seeing it everywhere. I just want to warn you of that. But so to become aware of it, and then to the easiest thing that we can do is to shield our lights. And so you can do that retroactively. You can, uh, you can put shields on existing lights, or as is happening in many American cities and towns, whenever there are new lights put up, they are what we call fully shielded, uh, so that the light is only allowed to go straight down to light the street or the property or what have you that 
is meant to be lit and nowhere else. Not, it's not lighting the sky. It's not lighting the, the, the farm that's five miles away in the distance kind of thing. Just that spot. So uh, shielding is the main thing. And then what happens when you shield your lights is that you realize you don't need as much uh, wattage as you were using when you were ineffectively spraying your light in all directions. And so, in fact, shielding works kind of a double whammy where we, we direct the light to the ground and then we can actually use less bright lights, uh, fewer bright lights or lights that are not quite as bright because we don't need all that extra light. Now, are you optimistic, pessimistic that uh, some of the light pollution can be reclaimed? Laws can be uh, set up to prevent this in the future. It seems like you know, the economic impulse and other impulses and uh, I guess the the predispositions we have, well-lit equals safe and good, uh, would kind of be counteracting some of the things you want to have happen. Yeah, in answer to your, you know, the start of your question, I um, sometimes I'm overwhelmed by the task, um, but really compared to some of the issues that we're, other issues that we're facing, um, controlling light pollution is, is, is much easier. It's readily within our grasp to control. And so most of the time, I really am quite optimistic about this. I think that once people begin to understand how much light we're wasting, and so by light, I mean energy, I mean money. We're just spraying light uh, money into the, into the atmosphere right now. The International Dark Sky Association estimates that we waste more than $2 billion in the States just on light that's being um, outdoor light that's being sprayed around into the night. And so I think once people realize that this is an unnecessary waste of light and that um, good lighting, intelligent lighting, actually is not only better for the stars, but it actually improves our safety and that there's really no reason to have this bad lighting. There's so many reasons to have good lighting and to recognize the value of darkness and almost no reasons to have bad lighting. I think that I trust that people will begin to think, wow, this, why are we doing it this way? Let's, let's do it in a, in, a more, uh, in a better way. Here's a uh, photo. We encourage you to go to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Beautiful photograph here uh, from Sam Crump. And this is his, it's uh, of Logan looking out probably from the west, I'm, I'm imagining. So a, a uh, faraway look at Logan. This is his at night. And his comment is, Cache Valley Night. Firework smoke shows light pollution. Then he goes on to say, uh, Logan City is changing street lighting to be night sky compliant. And you do see the, you know, the smoke is kind of uh, illuminating the light, which goes up a, a long ways, and I imagine travels quite a ways. Well, that's good news. Logan City, according to Sam Crump, is changing street lighting to be night sky compliant. I, I think it is good news, and a lot of uh, municipalities, cities, towns, suburbs are doing that. Um, many of them are motivated by simply the energy issue, that they realize that, um, that bad lighting is, is a waste of money. Let's not do that anymore. We don't have money to waste. Um, but some of them are also um, recognizing that light pollution is something that we can handle, that there are all these costs. Why not take care of that? And just to go back to our earlier question, too, I wanted to make the point that sometimes people will say, oh, you know, this, this problem is too big. I mean, think of the cities. They're so bright. We'll never control it. And really, though, when you think about that, if we worked to, in cities of any size, control our lighting in those cities, there's a really wonderful ripple effect that goes out into the surrounding areas, whether those are suburbs or rural areas, or you can imagine in Utah some of the wild areas, some of the national parks. And so by lowering the light levels, by shielding our lights and, and lowering the light levels in our cities and towns, we actually uh, benefit those areas around those er the cities and towns by bringing back the stars, bringing back that true darkness. We're talking with Paul Bogard. He's author of End of Night, uh, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. You can join the conversation, as Paul Crump did, just did, posted a beautiful picture. Uh, you can comment as well on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio. 
you can uh, join us by email, upraxis at gmail.com. We have about 10 minutes left with uh, Paul Bogard. Upraxis at gmail.com. We'd love to hear about your night sky experience, whether you're losing your night sky or just tell, about, tell us about your, maybe you have a number two on the boardy scale and uh, want to tell us about it. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I want to hear a good example. It's very interesting. Paris, the city of lights. Um, Paul Bogard says uh, they continue to be a good example of, uh, of how you can light up your city without uh, creating too much light pollution. We'll also ask him where are some good places where you can see a truly dark night sky, have those great experiences. Several of those are in Utah. Back after the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States. The harmful ultraviolet rays from both the sun and indoor tanning sun lamps can cause many other complications besides skin cancer, such as eye problems, a weakened immune system, age spots, wrinkles, and leathery skin. Wear clothing that will protect your skin from the harmful UV rays such as long sleeve shirts and pants. Stay out of the sun if possible between the peak burning hours, which are between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Find some shade or make your own with a broad-brimmed hat. Use extra caution when at higher altitudes as there is less atmosphere to absorb UV radiation. And lastly, make sure to apply broad-spectrum sunscreen of at least 15 SPF to cover all exposed skin. By following these simple steps, you can still enjoy your time in the sun and protect yourself from overexposure. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, nighttime dark, a spectacular nighttime dark, the way it used to be in many areas. And uh, that's what Paul Bogard rhapsodizes about and, uh, and advocates for return to in, uh, in many of our areas. In his book, The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. This, this nighttime dark, uh, Paul Bogard, I think uh, you would say gets us back to, and others have said in reviewing your book, gets us back to this uh, primordial darkness. In fact, this is uh, Scott Russell Sanders reviewing your book. Uh, he talks about the primordial darkness beyond what he calls our lit-up bubble, talking about our planet. Well, you know, um, this is where we came from. This is our experience. This is uh, part of what it means to be a human being. And if you think about the fact that for ever since there were human beings, the the experience of walking out at night and coming face to face with the surrounding universe has been a common human experience. And from that experience, we've developed uh, philosophies, religion, science, artwork, uh, and you just start to think about all the things we're losing when we've lost that firsthand experience of coming face-to-face with the universe. I wonder if you could uh, get into talking about some places you've been and some places we could go where you can experience this true darkness. Several of the places are in Utah. You'd, I think you mentioned Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, National Parks. Yeah, I'm uh, as somebody who lived in the West for a decade and now teaches in the East, I'm envious of, of folks who are, are still living in Utah and, and surrounding areas. Um, because there are so many beautiful areas that are beautiful not only in the daytime, but beautiful at night as well. Um, Bryce Canyon is uh, really uh, a jewel um, when it comes to thinking about dark skies. The the, uh, National Park Service there is serious about helping people to come out and experience a true true darkness and, and to really understand the importance of it. Um, but I would say all other parks like uh, Great Basin over in Nevada, or if you can get over to Death Valley in California, um, Grand Canyon is a wonderful place. And any of these, the southern uh, Utah parks are really wonderful places. And it was important for me to focus on these places that we know and love already, because there are other dark places in the U.S., but they're relatively remote, and most of us aren't going to be there. I think that if we're serious about understanding the value of darkness and and thus preserving it, it's going to be because of these places like a Bryce Canyon or a Grand Canyon or a Capitol Reef or Natural Bridges that we know and love and want to preserve. 
Now, the National Park System, I think, is on the forefront in, in some of this. They have, of course, the mission to conserve unimpaired. That it would include, include the reducing light pollution. They have something called a, called a night sky project. They have the night sky team now, and uh, the National Park Service has um, has now included in their mission the preservation of darkness. And so the night sky team is has been going around um, uh, uh, gauging the levels of darkness in all the parks as a way to say, this is what we have, uh, this is what we need to preserve, because we're losing darkness all over the world very rapidly, but it's happening just slowly enough that we don't really notice. Um, and so when you have, as I often say, uh, parking lots and gas stations lit 10 times as brightly as they were just 20 years ago, 20 years is not a lot of time, but it's just enough time that it's hard to notice. So the National Park Service, the first step in preservation is to uh, gauge what you have, to, to become aware of what you have. And really until recently, the Park Service hasn't included darkness uh, as something that they're concerned about. So this is a real step forward, and I think the Park Service is to be applauded for that effort. I wonder if there's, is there a website I could go to, um, other place I could go to, which would show me where, say, my town or my area is on the Bordy scale and, and give me some information. Yeah, I would start with the, uh, the website darksky.org, which is the website of the International Dark Sky Association, just as a, a place to go to learn about all the different things that we've been talking about. Um, there's also, if you Google um, Dark Sky Finder, um, I've had luck finding on there um, uh, essentially map, a map of the U.S. that will show you different areas of, of darkness as well. But um, just Googling um, dark skies and where do I find dark skies will probably uh, be a rich way to approach it. Just a minute left. If, uh, if someone's interested in maybe getting into the public policy aspect of this, advocating for darker skies in their area, would, uh, I'm sure there are organizations, what, uh, how to get involved? Yeah, again, I would recommend the International Dark Sky Association. They've been uh, working tirelessly, tirelessly to, uh, to uh, help people understand that we can control this through um, implementing lighting ordinances, uh, rules about lighting, and that it, in doing so really um, uh, benefits all of us. We save money, we save the night sky, we protect our health. It's really to the benefit of all. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Um, and uh, I... Advertise that we'd be talking about Las Vegas versus uh, Paris, but you'll have to go to the book to, to, to read that, and you got some wonderful pictures there as well. Um, Paul Bogard is uh, author of the new book, The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And for producers Taylor Halverson and Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. Today I hope to be able to exist in bliss. Actually, I hope to be able to stop everywhere. We're on a road trip that must pass through southern Idaho, and we're supposed to drive long distances without stopping. My wife is opposed to repeated delays on the way to our destination, but how do you tell a hardworking guy on vacation that he doesn't have the right to exist in bliss Idaho for a few minutes? I know that detours to other exotic Idaho locations will be more difficult to sell to my wife, who's one of those driver people who want to make good time so we can better enjoy our destination. Traveling by car is not an easy thing for me. I, I have the capacity to travel for long distances without stopping, as long as there are no exits to tempt me and as long as time trapped in the car does not exceed 15 minutes. I like to stop at big truck stops because lots of times they have stuff I need. For example, they often have a section of glass products that appear to be targeted at hard rockers who play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. We don't have a single crystal ashtray. And a good truck stop, you can buy one that comes with a glass dragon with bright red eyes that I believe are made out of rubies. I don't actually drive much when we travel, in part because my wife likes to skip exits. She finds no magic in truck stops either. The thought of a juicy hot dog that's been rolling and cooking all day in one of those display cases at a gas station does not appeal to her. I've never purchased one of those rotating wonders, but I think about it often as I travel because I 
eventually begin to think about eating everything that doesn't eat me first just to stave off the boredom. We do bring snacks, and although each time I'm convinced I will not eat in the car, once the monotony sets in, things change. Soon I'm eating to the bottom of a potato chip bag just so I can make it into a hat. Food isn't the only thing I bring to prepare for the severe boredom of a long road trip. Like a child in church armed with Cheerios and cloth playbooks, we stock our car with dozens of diversions that I can use to distract myself if we have to drive by more than one exit without stopping. We have books on CD, books on cassette tape, a fully loaded iPhone, a rubber band gun, several kites, a few real books, and a stack of newspapers, most of which cannot be accessed without pulling over and unpacking the car on the side of the freeway. Since we adopted my iPhone pet, I spent a good percentage of my time on road trips online trying to make a case for stopping at a hotel after we put in a good day of two or three hours on the road. I do this by looking online for very inexpensive hotels. Sometimes after I put a chip bag hat on and start flying kites out our window while zapping my wife with rubber bands, she starts to think that maybe a break wouldn't be so bad after all. She begins to consider that perhaps we could afford to stop at a bare-bones clean hotel where she could lock herself in the bathroom and get all the collateral-damaged potato chip crumbs out of her hair. Once I get her comfortable considering such a low-budget alternative, I suggest that for just $25 more a night, we could stay across the street in a slightly nicer hotel. If I can subtly repeat this step in small increments several times successfully, I will go into a hotel and see if I can upgrade our room for a small additional fee of just $20. Eventually, we're staying in a grown-up hotel suite with multiple televisions and an in-room jacuzzi. Such hotels have permanent phones in the bathroom, which allows me to communicate directly with my sweetheart while we rest. This has worked so well that on one trip, we ended up just $20 shy of staying in the Lincoln bedroom at the White House. But it all fell apart when Barb, who is not a big Obama supporter, insisted the White House should pay us to stay there. It's her contention that we paid enough into the pot to fund several overnight stays in the Lincoln bedroom. I know most guys pride themselves in seeing how far they can drive without stopping at all. Clearly, this is not my strength. You might wonder, as I'm sure my wife has, what good I am on a family vacation if I'm always doing things that thwart forward momentum and I'm constantly scheming to figure out ways to incrementally spend more money than we have. Well, you're ahead of me, aren't you? I say, why aim low for Congress? Why not shoot for the top spot? If I'm so good at thwarting progress and incrementally increasing spending, I can make the transition quite easily. And besides, I'm still sore at not getting that last White House upgrade. Today, I just need to focus on existing in bliss while the rest of you speed on by. And then tomorrow, I should probably start heading east. The election is coming up in 2016, and there are lots of exits between here and Washington, D.C. This is Steve Eaton. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Mm-hmm.